Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Well, hello there, listeners. You've returned to another episode of Cycling in Alignment. And once again, I am grateful for your attention and presence and interest in my work. Today's interview is with Jason Williams. Jason is a bike fitter who works at the Specialized Experience Center in Boulder, Colorado. He's also a retool fitter. And our conversation revolves around the method of operation of the retool fit process and some of Jason's philosophies on bike fitting herein. This is part of a series of pods I've done with different fitters, and I'm going to look at the subject from all angles, because the only way to have a complete understanding of a subject is to do a deep dive from all sides. Soup to nuts, balls to bones. That's the way I like to think of it. I will say that I've known quite a few people who work at Retool over the years, including Todd Carver, one of the, I'll say, original creators of the concept, at least insofar as to bring motion capture to the world of bicycling. That's how Jason explains it in the pod. He clarified that for us. And while I don't have an inherent issue with any technology retool brings to the table, I don't use it in my fit studio for a variety of reasons. That said, I do think it's interesting to look at other fitters' perspectives and understand the logic of why they make the choices they make. So, we're going to move forward into the conversation and let you hear all the talking points and subtleties of our discussion. Please enjoy the conversation with Jason Williams. Jason Williams. Hi. Hi. Thank you for joining me today on our magical podcast adventure, Cycling in Alignment. Great. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, cool. Short notice. Yeah. You made it. Tell us about yourself. Tell us about your adventures in life. Where are you from? How did you How did you get into bike fitting? Well, yeah, I, I grew up in Maine. Um, started riding bikes as a kid, like most of us, but pretty pretty much got deep into bikes uh, junior high school and high school. I was just I've always been a a cyclist, a mountain biker kind of by upbringing, and and riding mountain bikes in the woods of Maine. We used to go out in the swamps and see how deep we could get in the mud and just bury these mountain bikes up to the hubs. It was, you know, probably not great for the bearings, but we had a lot of fun just, you know, bombing around in the swamps of Maine and and mountain biking. So after that got into, you know, I think in college I started, you know, professionally working on bikes. So uh, as a mechanic, um, turned the the passion for bikes into, you know, a bit of side money in college uh, working on bikes. And pretty much the rest is history. I've been professionally in the bike world ever since. So my entire career has been in the bike world to some degree. Where'd you go to college? In Maine, uh, University of Maine in Orono. Okay. Yep. Okay. And what did yeah. you study? Uh, I studied uh, English literature, creative writing. So I did some creative writing, uh, you know, kind of side degree. And then uh, English literature is my kind of primary degree. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it, was, it was a great degree. It was super fun to... Just spend time reading and learning and just getting super into, you know, Don Quixote and all these like amazing literary stuff that was really a, it was cool. a great degree. Really passionate about that stuff for sure. Uh-huh. Yeah. But you didn't end up using that too much in your professional adventures or no, did you? Not really. I mean, it was a really interesting degree. You know, I've always kind of felt like I'm a learner. I love to learn. And so like learning about literature was amazing. And then 
just turning that into anything going on from there is just, I like to learn about whatever I can. Mm -hmm. And this is in the era, you know, before high school mountain biking, which is of course exploding now. So, right. I did yeah. actually race, uh, mountain bikes in the, in the early nineties. Um, Maine actually had a pretty good new England mountain bike scene in the nineties. And mm -hmm. so did a little bit of mountain bike racing back in those days on a fully rigid steel mountain bike. Yep. Um, did my first downhill mountain bike race on a fully rigid steel mountain bike. <laughs> mountain bike. It was great. It was, yeah. uh, it was a lot of fun. I had some of those adventures too. I, yeah, I, yeah, I did a couple cross country races in Steamboat, Colorado on oh, a sure. fully rigid bike. Yeah. Nice. But, you know, I was really excited about how I was going to kill everyone on the climb because my fork was so much lighter. Right. <laughs> until I had to go down. <laughs> right. I saw my first uh, suspension bike there, you know, with a, a 70 millimeter travel Marzocchi suspension fork. I was like, whoa, it's amazing. You know, you look back at that now and it's just so, uh, you know, simple. But it was, you know, at that time it was amazing to see the first suspension bikes come out. And it was yep. really cool. It's funny. Yeah. Self-respecting cross-country weenie wouldn't even be caught dead on only right. 70 mils now yeah, that's right exactly yeah so. 70 mils is like most gravel bikes have 70 mils right exactly <laughs> <laughs> that's funny okay so then you you followed your passion for the sport and began to work in a shop as a mechanic and then how did you actually get your interest kindled in in uh where to put people's handlebars and whatnot you know i think uh in the early 2000s um when i shortly after I moved to boulder i was still um, working as a mechanic, kind of a side job, um, actually tried to get out of the bike world. And I did a master's degree here at CU, um, in journalism. So a master's in journalism with a environmental policy certificate. So I specialized in energy policy and environmental journalism, super interesting as well, you know, kind of like the undergrad, like really interesting to learn about all that, but also it turned out I didn't want to do that for a career either. So, you know, I think about that journalism degree and again, just wanting to explore and learn about things just, and the journalism degree was great. It was a carte blanche to just learn about whatever you're curious about. And that's kind of how I've always operated. Find something you're curious about, learn about it and become an expert in that. And so journalism was fascinating in that way, but also was working in the bike world on the side. Um, after the grad degree, again, kind of realized it wasn't my passion to sort of follow that as a career. So kind of turned back to the bike world and that's when uh, Ben Serrata came to town for a, a fit camp. So he did a, uh, a bike fit training at the Hotel Boulderado in, I think, 2005. So I joined uh, Ben Serrata for a, a fit training 2005, kind of really got that started. I had several mentors at the shops I'd worked with that were fitters. And I was like, oh, you know, that's kind of this mystical thing. What are those guys doing over there? You know, mm -hmm. I was curious about it, but I didn't really know. You know, I came from the mechanical background. Um, but I also knew I didn't want to spend the rest of my career working in the trenches, just, you know, up to my elbows in in hub grease. I mm -hmm. wanted to explore more and I think ultimately work with the rider, work with, you know, the, the people more than just the bike. You know, the bike is fascinating, but I also really liked the interaction with the people and how that interaction plays out working with riders and their bike combined. Mm -hmm. And Okay, so in 2005, you, you studied under Ben Serrata, um, and then tell me about that experience. What What is involved in uh, that study and that path of learning, I'll say? Sure. You know, I think the fundamentals <clears throat> of, you know, the Serrata fit, I mean, he's one of the earliest sort of pioneers of, of bike fit, and 
you know, simple concepts of, you know, knee over pedal spindle and appropriate knee extension and, you know, reasonable back angles and things like that, that were just, I'd say fundamentals of, of bike fit. Um, and then especially then early on, there was a flexibility evaluation, you know, a physical evaluation to get to know the rider, find out what's important to that rider and what's appropriate for them flexibility and range of motion wise and then apply that to creating a bike position for that rider. So, you know, even those those early days, it was still very important to understand the rider's physical needs, their personal needs, what they're looking for in the bike, mm. and then design a bike for them. And so the, the Serata Fit Bike, you know, the SICI Fit Bike was a pretty effective tool. I mean, simple by today's terms, but still really effective at setting I think appropriate seat height, fore and aft, you know, reach to the bars, bar height, and and then using that tool, potentially discuss designing them a custom bike. So Ben Serrata's model was, you know, what position is appropriate for the rider, and then let's figure out how to build a custom Serrata for that rider. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of parlayed into, you know, helping people with their current bikes as well. Right. So that's interesting. Yeah. There's kind of a couple different paths to deal with a rider when they walk through your door as a fitter, right? Frequently riders have an existing bike. Right. They come in the door. Sometimes they don't know if their bike's the right size. A lot of times they have no idea if it's been set up right. So as a fitter, your my philosophy, and tell me if you agree with this, disagree with this, whatever, is I kind of try to balance the physiology of the rider with the demands of their event, their dream goal or objective. Right. So someone comes to me and says, oh, I'm, I'm training for unbound gravel. Right. Uh, you know, I'm doing 200 and eight miles or whatever it is. Or if their goal is to win the Colorado state time trial championships, two different, very different objectives. So we have to consider that in their bike setup, but we also have to consider the platform from which they're starting. If Ben only makes custom, fully custom frames, then he's got this fit bike and he can sort of use any parameter he wants to set up a rider and then build a frame geometry around that. When someone walks to the door with, you know, a $5,000 investment in their current road bike or gravel bike or whatever they've got. You can't, you don't have an unlimited whiteboard to work from necessarily. Right. Sometimes you can only get the bar so low. You can only get the bar so close to them or so far away or whatever. Right. So that just makes me think about challenges we have as a fitter, because sometimes we think that we have this, this whiteboard, I guess is what I'm trying to say, but we don't necessarily. Right. We're, we are working within the constraints of what we can do within the equipment we've got. Another example is cleat position. Another common limitation. Sometimes you want people's cleats to be in a different place than the shoe allows right. or the pedal allows or both. Yep. Right? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting challenge because in the cases when you have that blank slate whiteboard, it's uh, amazing as far as the possibility, but it's also daunting. When you have all the possibilities in the world, then how do you lay down – a point where you say this is perfect for mm-hmm. that rider. Yep. It's much easier in a sense to say, here's your bike, here's your problems, here's your concerns, here's your event, let's make improvements to that bike. In a sense, that's easy because you can say, you don't like this and here's your goals, let's bring your bike and your position towards your goals and towards your personal needs. Right. And an improvement is a benefit, right? So if you go from not great to better, that's a, a really positive result. If you have somebody comes in with a blank slate, let's build a custom bike, then you're not really improving on something that's not great. You're just sort of putting a line in the sand and saying, here's perfect, or here's my version of perfect. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, 
it's a bigger challenge to say like, what's perfect with that rider. So it does help when they come in with a bike that they don't like. So, you know, you're not going to duplicate. You're moving away from, you're moving away from something. Yeah. So I always like to have that, that benchmark of here's your current bike. And even if they love it, there's still some potential for improvement. Mm. So let's measure this bike. Let's talk about how you interact with this bike. Let's talk about your goals. Mm. Let's really make sure we examine that bike so we don't double back on that and say, okay, these are the points you you outlined that you want to improve on. Mm-hmm. Let's take your new custom bike in that direction. You know, and perfect is kind of within this window of like adjustability. So when I say here's your perfect position, I still bank on the fact that some spacers up and down, a stem length longer, shorter, you know, we still have to buy into the fact that they may change, you know, their body may change, their goals may change. So you can't really, I think it would be misguided to lock into a position to say, here's your perfect position forever. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's a reality. I think people have a position that's really good for them today. And then a year from now, we might reevaluate that position. Yeah, that's a good point. And I just did an interview with Happy Friedman last week and he described it more as a, well, this is an extension of what you were just saying, I think, but he was saying that people don't really have a perfect position per se, but they have a position range. And the point he used to make, to illustrate that is that someone's height will change. He said up to five centimeters within the course of a day Hmm. Uh, because you sleep, of course, most people sleep horizontally unless you're a vampire. Sure. And so your spine expands and your fascia relaxes and your tissues become hydrated, assuming you're actually drinking water and those types of things. And then you stand up and of course, gravity battles you all day. And we start to, now I think five centimeters is probably on the extreme end. And I doubt that most people probably get five centimeters shorter by the end of the day, but it's probably, it's possible. But I'm sure most of us, our height changes a few mils here and there. So his point being is if you see someone for a bike fit at 8.30 in the morning, that's different than seeing them at 5 at night sure. or 4 in the afternoon sure. because they have not been subject to gravity all day. So I think that's an interesting concept to to play around is, is that positional range. Both we might say um, like your acute training load versus your chronic training load, right? Your acute height <laughs> right. within the day or your acute mobility or flexibility versus your chronic and how are you making functional changes over the long term? Are you right. doing Pilates and yoga? Uh, are you, are you doing elbow stretches? Are you working on, are you strength training? Is that strength training going to make your muscles stronger and shorter or longer and more supple, etc.? Yeah. I think if you, if you identify a range that's appropriate for that rider and they're going to work within that range, mm-hmm. you know, then you have a position that's very workable. And then you have the rider that's going to adapt to that position. So, you know, I do believe that there's a, if you find a position that's within the range of the rider and that rider spends some time, as long as it's not on the the borders of that range, they're going to, they will adapt to that position and find that that position is, is very workable, very natural for them. You know, obviously if, if that range is pushed, that's when we find, you know, discomfort, right? If you're outside of range, then that rider will have discomfort, um, so, you know, you'll identify riders that if, if a rider has been off a bike for a couple of weeks, taking some time off for the holidays and they get back on, I've heard this number of times from professional athletes, they get back on their bike and say, whoa, did somebody change my bike? Mm-hmm. Nobody changed your bike. It's been in a, a storage locker since you left been in your garage. last race, right? Yeah. 
And then they get back in the bike and they're like, this is not my bike. Mm -hmm. And then they spend a couple of weeks riding it and it's like, oh yeah, this is totally my bike. But you know, that, mm -hmm. that first impression, there can be a highly tuned professional athlete that gets on their bike and thinks that somebody pulled a swap on them. Right. So, you know, there's this, this time of adaptation. So if you find a position that's within the range of that rider and they give the time to adapt to that and it's an appropriate position, then it can be a very effective position for that rider. Yeah. That's a good concept to outline maybe one of the core challenges um, MOs of bike fitting is finding that balance between how much of the bike do we want to adjust versus how much do we want to ask the athlete to adapt. Right. Because the athletes, humans are amazing and we can adapt to almost anything in the short term, especially if you tell them, if you get in this position, you're going to win bike races. Right, right. And if people buy into that, then they're, they'll convince themselves to do almost anything, right? So that makes me think about that almost, I'll say, um, authoritarian father in the sky, Dr. White lab coat paradigm right. or archetype. You know, people go to a doctor and they they kind of think in our society, at least in Western society, we perceive of doctors as these authority figures that can answer problems and, and give us solutions and help cure our health challenges. And I'm not saying bike fitters are equivalent to doctors in any way, but archetypally there is sort of a, I go to my bike fitter to fix problems right. scenario. And that does sort of invite some of the same energies of that, of that archetype. I pay an expert and they solve my problems. And the challenge I think comes in Western mentality, which is the, the, you know, if I pay more money, then the problem is easier. You know, it's quicker and easier. It's a pill or it's a, my back hurts. Can you just move my saddle in the right place? And then it'll go away. Right. And of course we know that it's often all too often far more complicated than that. Occasionally you get that Easter egg. Right. I've had riders come in where they've had ongoing knee problems for a long time. And then you look at their cleats and one of their cleats has slipped and it's at like a 45 degree angle to the shoe and you go, okay, this is an easy one. Right. But that happens about once every four years, right? So the vast majority of the time, it's diving into the fractal, solving the problem of the infinite layers of the human body and trying to figure out what's going on. So I had some greater point there. Wow, that was a little tangent in the weeds. Well, something you, you <clears throat> kind of hit on that, that rang true with me is this sort of the placebo effect in bike fit, which is, it, you know, for me, it posed sort of an identity crisis as a fitter when you as a young fitter or a new fitter you you learn the the methodology you apply the methodology and you have success and you're okay so the, the method works but then you know farther down the line you realize okay i'm going to suggest a new saddle for this rider and they try it and they say wow this is great and you're like is it really great or right. do you think it's great because i said it's great you know and it's it becomes a little cloudy, right? Mm -hmm. I do believe, you know, if I recommend a saddle, I do believe strongly that I'm recommending something I think that they're going to appreciate. doesn't always work that way. But then, you know, you wonder how much me saying this is going to be great affects their perception of it being great. And perhaps it really does make it great because they believe it to be great. Mm -hmm. And if the fit is appropriate, the width is appropriate, the shape is good, it doesn't cause problems, then it's, it's great. You yeah. know, so I think there is something good to that, but it also can kind of cloud the waters when you get into recommending product or changes. Um, yeah. But I mean, that's, that is in our, in our realm is to be confident in our recommendations, to state it confidently mm -hmm. and to get their feedback. 
I don't want to recommend anything that's not great, you know, so I definitely want to know if they're not, you know, I don't want you to just tell me if you think it's great. I want to know if it's not great. Um, but that it does pose a little bit of a, of a, um, you know, a dilemma in bike fit, you know, to mm. really suss out appropriate changes and make sure that they really are appropriate for the rider. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. That takes us back to that white lab coat paradigm of you are, I'm paying you for your expert opinion, which is all good. That's why people sign up for a bike fit, but we have power as fitters to suggest certain things. I think that's what you're getting at. And, and so if you have certain products on your shelf and happy and I discuss this too, happy doesn't sell anything in his fit studio. He doesn't right. sell saddles, doesn't sell shoes, doesn't sell pedals. And his objective there, his line of thought is that he wants to be able to give the client confidence that he doesn't have an agenda to sell them a bunch of stuff and leverage that expert opinion. And I totally understand that perspective. Uh, it makes sense to me. That's not how I run my fit studio. I sell things because I view things like stems and handlebars as problem solvers. Right. And if a client comes in the door with, you know, a 120 and they need a 110, then, and I don't sell them and they don't have one, then it's a showstopper. Like how right. do we proceed with our fit? Right. And there are other ways to solve that problem, but I prefer to send the client out the door with as many solutions as possible. So then there's that striking that balance between making a recommendation for a particular saddle or a particular shoe for a client that I happen to sell. And I try to strike the balance by authentically carrying products that I believe in, but also making it clear that my objective is not to sell the client things. It's to get them the best fit possible, whatever that solution is. And if the shoes I sell happen to be part of that solution, great. The reason I carry them is because they work for a lot of riders, but it doesn't mean it they works for that individual, right? So there's that, that authoritarian tension there where we have to I'll say work with the client authentically and try to try to solve the problem in the best way for them without having an agenda to sell extra stuff. Right. I think that's a really important point. I, you know, early on, it was one of the lessons I learned in some of my first fits was, you know, again, you learn this methodology and the methodology includes, okay, get them on the right saddle, put the right stem on, adjust the handlebar, maybe put a, a different handlebar on. So, mm -hmm. If you follow the methodology and you recommend these parts, you could come to the end of that and the person just says, they just tried to sell me a bunch of stuff. Right. Like that was the agenda. And so like I was lucky enough to get some good feedback from clients early on to say, I appreciate everything you did, but it did feel a little bit like you were trying to sell me stuff. So yep. like I acknowledged that really early on. Yeah. So a few years ago when I was, well, I was probably 12 or 13 years ago when I had the opportunity to build a studio from scratch. Okay. Here's a room. Let's start from scratch. Let's make it the way you want it. I made a conscious decision to say, we're not going to display any product. Mm -hmm. This is rider in the middle of the room with some technology to measure their position. And this is a rider first experience. Mm -hmm. We had cupboards and drawers with all the product I needed, but the product was not the point of the experience. So right. I really wanted to put literally the rider on a pedestal. You know, we put the rider on a stand in the middle of the room. This is their session. Mm -hmm. It's all about them. You need to see, oh, I do have that here, but the seat is not the focus of that interaction. So mm. nothing displayed on the walls, nothing, you know, hanging on cards in like a retail sense. It was not supposed to be a retail experience. It was supposed to be a, a rider driven experience. But yes, having the product that you support and believe in to help that experience. Yeah. It is important to have it there, but just not as the primary, you know, experience that they, that they see and, and, um, Mm. you know, you don't want that to be their, their first impression when they walk in the room. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a good point. 
So something else I want to ask you about is how you feel about the tension between, I'll say that there's this balance, right? Because we're, we're on the one hand, we're trying to set up the bike for the physiology of the rider and meet it for the demands of their event. And when we explore the physiology of the rider, we can unpack that into, as you said, their pre-fit evaluation. We're doing a Thomas test or we're looking at their hamstring flexibility or whatever. We're looking at how their spine bends when they're hip hinging, et cetera. How good is their hip hinge, right? Which takes us into Paul Cech's primal movement patterns. He teaches their six primal movement patterns for for, that any sport can be broken down into or reduced to. And, and the, the first one in bike fitting is a hip hinge. That's what it is. It's a static hip hinge and then a series of lunges. And then you could argue it's a pull and a static push and very little bit of twisting here and there, maybe more so in mountain biking when you're driving the hips to corner and things like that. So when we look at that pile of data and then we're trying to convert that into how they're going to sit on the bike. And then we're perhaps educating the rider a little bit on their posture and what their shortcomings are, what their strengths are in each of those categories. And we're sort of unpacking all that. There's, I feel like there's a tension between, first of all, there's a tension between education of the rider and simply sending them out the door with what works on the day. And that's where my crosshairs tend to end up a lot of the time. That's why my fits tend to be so long is I feel like I really prefer to teach an athlete how to fish rather than hand them a salmon or a plate of kippers, whatever your analogy is, right? And that just happens to be what where my passion is. I know not all fitters feel that way and a lot of people just sort of want to button things on the day and there's no judgment on my end from anybody's method. I'm just explaining what my line of thought is. I feel like there's also a tension between asking a rider for feedback on a given change. Let's say you raise their saddle 12 millimeters and you ask them, how does that feel? Because you want their feedback. That's part of the process of engaging a rider or maybe a more crystal example to use to start off with is you change their saddle. They come in on saddle X and you say, and they go, I've got some saddle sores and I feel twisted on the bike or, you know, I'm not sure if this is the right width. I don't know. Sometimes I get numbness. Okay, let's try a different model. And you use your experience to interpret their sensations and say, I think this saddle's a little more padded than you need, or maybe it's not padded enough or whatever. It's too narrow or it's too wide. So you select another saddle. You say, let's try this one. And then they ride on it for a few minutes and they ask, and you ask them, how does this feel? And just as you said, because you are the expert, you're wearing the white lab coat metaphorically, and you've given them your opinion of what might work. Sometimes that influences their feedback on that saddle. And so there's several points I want to make here. One is that I think there are some aspects of bike fit that in my opinion are pretty cut and dried. Meaning when I look at your saddle height, I feel like that is pretty much your saddle height. There's a little range there, but if we go 20 mils higher or 15 mils lower, you're going to be out of that range, right? And I'm just kind of making up numbers to illustrate the point. But there are other aspects of fit that could be more subjective and more um there are more solutions that could possibly work i'll say you could try a couple different models of saddles and maybe there's one that's a tiny bit better but most of them would work most of the time for you but the way to bear that out is over time it's going to take you three or four weeks to try a saddle and really get enough feedback to um be able to report to me did that work or not this is where trial saddles or test saddles really come in quite handy right or 
maybe some companies have a kind of money back situation six weeks or something like that. I don't know what the policies are, but that puts the ball on the court of the rider to make that decision and try it over a couple rides, you know, an hour ride, some rides of climbing, some rides of flats, blah, blah, blah. But what I'm trying to get at is very long way to ask this question. <laughs> How do you account for the tension between, here's what I'll say. People, you can ask someone what they like when you make a change to their bike fit, but most riders don't really know what's going on with their own bodies. Right. Proprioceptive input or ability to have proprioceptive clarity is pretty low in my experience. There are exceptions. Gymnasts, ballerinas, for example, lifetime athletes who are super tuned, one category of person. Most bike, racer, bike riders and bike racers don't fit into that description. So proprioceptively, they're not super clued in. So how do you account for that tension of, do you like this? And then you're looking at it and you're going, hmm, I don't, I'm actually not happy with this, but the writer's telling me they like this. Right. How do you, how do you sort of equalize that equation? I don't know if that was a clear question. Do you no, understand what I, I'm getting get, at? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, you know, I think, um, the, the writer feedback we, you know, we as fitters, we need to hold that in high regard, right? We need them to, to give us good feedback and we need to really honor what they tell us, right? We, we, we don't want to be in the place where we're saying, well, no, trust me, that's the right one, even though they're like, I don't like it. I don't like it. You know, so we're not in a place to try and force something that the rider doesn't like. But if we make a change in equipment based on a symptom or a problem and the rider feedback is positive, that's a huge factor. But for me in my practice, you know, using the retool equipment, the the motion capture equipment, I also like to see a reinforcing change in their measured data, right? So for for our practice, it's a combination of the rider feedback, my visual cues, and what we would interpret as a, an improvement in the data. So if we're, if we're measuring the rider and we can identify a measurement in their motion tracking data that's out of range or let's say a red flag in their data and we make a change and they respond both uh, – perceptively as an improvement and the data improves and it looks better to me, then that's kind of this home run of, of sort of feedback to say, mm -hmm. rider likes it, data agrees, I think it looks good, mm -hmm. let's try that. So it's kind of this combination of rider perception, data confirmation, and you know my kind of, uh, my suggestion of equipment to make that change. Right. Okay, and then, so let's, look macroscopically at the method of retool and uh i'll just full disclaimer here like i know todd pretty well todd sure. harbour he's the sure. guy who pretty much invented it right although i should maybe not say that out loud i don't know if that's quite historically accurate well, yeah so so cliff sims kind of developed the technology okay uh todd was the the fitter biomechanist who could sort of put it to use so to speak so okay. you know cliff as sort of the inventor of the technology had the vision for what the technology could do um, but Todd at the time was working with uh, Andy Pruitt at the Boulder Center for Sports Medicine, yep. had a chance to use the equipment and said, okay, we can use this in a fit context. And so Todd, I think, was able to apply the technology in a fit context. So yeah, invented the the way the technology was used, used as an application. In that particular yes. application. Okay, that makes sense. Right. And kind of because of his background using the motion capture lab at um, the university or at um, BCSM. Boulder Center for Sports Medicine. Yeah. Yep. So he had a motion capture background 
and could see the potential for the retool technology to right. to push that to markets, right? To bring that to retailers to use in a in a shop context as mm-hmm. opposed to just in a lab or clinical setting. Uh, let me outline this just so people are clear on what retool is. I think most people have an idea, but I'm just going to give a really quick overview. So we put markers on different uh, we put reflective markers on different biomechanical points on the body, right? Yes. Tibial tuberosity. A, a joint um, center yep. or a location, a, a prominent marker on the body that we can repeatedly identify right. as a joint center or a, a marker on the body. Right. Yep. And you film those markers in motion and then you basically the computer software makes a simple stick figure to look at angle changes. Correct. So we can look at normative angles, for example, knee angle, hip angle, uh, back angle relative to horizontal, right? Um, And then looking very macroscopically, fundamentally the method is that we compare, we we end up with a pile of data. And what, just for reference, like how many many data points do you guys have in the retool database? If you had to guess right now, it's been going for what, 15 years, right? I mean, it's got to be tens of thousands of riders recorded. Um, And the nice thing about the way the software has developed is that it is sort of layered upon itself, right? So the first generation, Todd and some of the early founders went to professional teams and they measured these athletes and said, okay, right or wrong, these are the best in the world at what they do. Let's measure them and quantify that and say, okay, let's learn from these pro athletes. Let's figure out how they're so good. Mm -hmm. And so the foundations were based on the best athletes in the world. Let's learn about how they ride a bike. And then you apply that to everyday people. And then you get this combination of the best of what we know about the pro athletes and then overlay the, you know, the everyday rider, you know, the mm-hmm. weekend warriors who who go out and ride huge rides on the weekend or even just people who ride, you know, 10 or 15 miles, you know, a couple times a week. Mm-hmm. You can overlay all of those data sets. And so what we have now after tens of thousands of riders is a – composite view of all of these riders, professionals and everyday riders. And our, our normative ranges are filtered from kind of this combination of data, um, based on all of those riders. Okay. So fundamentally the method is to, when someone, uh, is trained in retool method as a fitter, what they're doing is they're comparing an individual's data to a, to a set. And they're looking at how that individual's data either compares and they're using orthodoxy as a reference, right? Right. So when you see someone who's an outlier in a particular number, then that tells the fitter something about that individual that they don't fit in the bell curve. My question is, why is that relevant? Because all humans are individuals. So if we build a house for an average man... That's a man who's got 2.2 children, who's 5 point, you know, 5 feet, 9.25 inches, has 1.8 cars, has a fence that is, et cetera, so many meters long around their house property, has brownish eyes, et cetera, et cetera. Like I have yet to meet that human, right? So just to ask a pointed question, I guess, how, what, like what, what, why would orthodox data, why would this bell curve be relevant to any individual who you want to perform a bike fit on? I think probably the the biggest thing it can do for a rider and the fitter is to give some context to what they're seeing with the rider on the bike. And 
you totally nailed it that the the first place or the place where any fitter could go wrong is to fit to the orthodoxy mm-hmm. where the fitter is the the practitioner in this case is to interview the rider and do the assessment as you said identify the individual needs of the rider to identify where that rider fits into the normative ranges and to identify where that rider is going to break those ranges where it's appropriate that they break those ranges and where it's appropriate that they fit into those ranges. Mm -hmm. So we need to know who the rider is to understand how they work within the context, the framework of the data, because you're right to fit somebody to the middle of range. I think a lot of people would probably do fine with that, but there's a lot of people that wouldn't, like you Mm -hmm. said, that bell curve, you'd have 30 or 40% of the riders that don't fit into that, you know, bell curve average and you would be doing them a disservice if you try and put them into the middle of range. So the fitter needs to identify, is that rider going to break the range mm-hmm. or be out of range and why? And then make sure that we explain that to the rider. This range says this for most riders, but when we did that Thomas test, we identified that you were limited in this range. So I know that you're going to be out of range in this range, in this measurement, and that's okay. That's right. intentional. Right. So we have to intentionally interpret and break the rules when we need to uh, for the rider. So again, the the data is only a framework. But mm-hmm. what's nice is it does give some context. We can say your seat is lower than 99.9% of the population we've ever measured. I think we should maybe raise it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that's my opinion. I don't think you should raise it up. I'd say you're at the 99th percentile of seat height range. Maybe if we bring you into the 70 or 80 percentile, you might have a little bit less knee, you know, knee pain. So mm-hmm. I think that's kind of the key is is also identifying if there's an outlier in their data that coincides with one of their complaints or symptoms. Mm-hmm. If they present with knee pain, I'm looking for a, a flag in the data that says here's why. And if it's an outlier and their knee is bothersome and their assessment says that that might be a problem – like I said, that's that sort of three-part home run when we say rider mm-hmm. complaint, assessment observation, data confirmation, mm-hmm. let's make a change. Um, so, yeah, definitely the data provides context, but it's not the fit to the rule um, the, the way I interpret the data. Right. So do you think someone who's just starting out as a bike fitter and they learn retool method might lean more heavily on that data to kind of give them context or help them learn to interpret or are you guys teaching them to hopefully not lean on that data too much? Sure. No, you know, what's nice about the current status with retool is that it comes from this distillation of body geometry fit, which has been longstanding, you know, specialized has been teaching fitters to do physical assessments and to interview the rider and learn who Mm -hmm. the rider is for a long time. And then in more recent history, bring the technology in. So we have a long history of teaching riders to or teaching fitters to understand the rider. The technology is a new asset. Um, So yeah, we still really train fitters to learn about the rider first and then use the data as kind of a complementary framework for interpreting how that rider sits on a bike. Right. But to your point, I do think the data does give some important context for a new fitter to say, okay, you know, you can look at the rider, but then if you see the data and you see how much of an outlier that knee angle is, you're, you're confirming your eye and your, your perceptions as a fitter. So the data can also help to, to confirm what you see as a fitter by putting it into a a data um, context. Right. 
So you were saying that three-way triangle is, okay, let's say the rider has a history of knee pain, anterior knee pain, for example. And then you look at the data and it suggests that they're on the low side for saddle height. And then you look at them as a fitter and you say, yeah, their saddle looks low. Yep. Then you're, you're saying that then it makes sense to raise their saddle height. Yeah. Right? Is that fair? That that would be my... A simple example. That but. would be my sort of context is, yeah, like I don't make changes lightly, you know. Uh, right. I don't want to have a rider in the stand and take a quick peek and be like, boom, 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 let's make mm. all these changes. I want to lay out this this context, lay out this sort of ordered approach and to give them the, the reasons for making a change yeah. so that, you know, there's a pretty solid... Um, rationale behind making a change because right. I, you know, I don't ever make a change lightly. I make a change with very intentional, with, yeah. um, you know, methodology. Yeah. There's a, it reminds me of a funny, I think there's a cat three meme, like Instagram thing going around and some, at some point I got to print this out and put it on my wall, but there's one that was like bike fit, bike fitter uses random num number generator to make saddle height, you know? <laughs> and I think that is a, sort of a little, you know, whispery bad joke in the minds of a lot of people, they go to bike fit. And, right. and I, I've certainly heard stories about clients who go to bike fits with three or four different people and they come out with three or four different saddle heights that are totally. wildly different. And I, I mean, I think there are several explanations for that. And I'd love to hear your comments on this, but from my perspective, bike fit is this weird universe. It's like this collision of really old school Italian wives tales, Coney manual stuff. That's like, probably 85% of that is pretty much garbage. Um, no offense to any Italians out there, but it just needs to be looked at as ancient history and moved on from, and we've evolved, but there's maybe, I don't know, I'm making this up as a number, maybe 15% of it. That's like, yeah, okay. That happens to work out pretty well. And we can hold on to that. That's a right. reasonable, um, whatever platonic truth, I guess you could say about how the body sits on a bike. Maybe there's a higher percentage of that. I'm not really sure. I haven't thought about it too much um in terms of the numbers but i think there's that old school line of thought which isn't very developed about cyclists and cycling and then there's this new world of people who have conditioning uh training and strength and conditioning you know look at the body from different lenses the lenses of pilates or aldoa or deep anatomical knowledge uh or strength and conditioning from a different level you know and and we can apply those rules to this old school bike fitting world and get this collision of sort of weird outcomes. And so many cyclists, particularly the ones that have been riding their bikes for 30, 40 years, myself included in that category, it's easy to sort of hold on to these wives tales and go, oh yeah, but you know, your knee should graze the top tube when you pedal because that's arrow. And you talk to any modern strength and conditioning specialist and if, if, you, if someone coached you in the gym to do a squat with your knees, you know, grazing a fictitious top tube, right. like that coach would be like, what are you doing? You know, you're about to shred multiple aspects of your body. Right. So I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that collision of old and new world fitting and how that plays out? I think that's why we get so many weird potential. I think that's why we get so many disagreements or not cohesive lines of discussion in how a rider should sit on a bike. Right. You know, it's interesting because some of those old methods, you know, came, you know, were distilled from, again, racers, right? They pulled the measurements from the best in the world and let's learn from that. And then 
it's still the case today that a lot of, you know, a lot of riders out in the world, they see that pro that they think is cool and they want to match that rider's position, even though, you know, we as fitters might say that that person has no right or no position riding that rider's position, but they want to. And that's like what makes them excited about their new tarmac. Yeah. Um, but I guess my point there is that, you know, the, the pro riders and the elite athletes have a position that does let them perform better physically, but also, you know, the handling of the bike and the, the way the bike behaves underneath them mm. is an important part of that calculus, right? They need that bike to, to descend well, to climb well, to corner well. So there is some, you know, I think some of those kernels of truth in in those old school methods, you know, I think do still resonate in making sure that the bike behaves well underneath the rider. You know, there's these kind of old wives tales about how a bike should fit. Mm. And I do think that has some, you know, kind of resonance in the way the bike might corner and behave on a descent. Because I think, as you know, we can identify a fit that is super comfortable and feels great. But then you get speed wobbles or you get, you know, yeah. some of these um, ride dynamic characteristics that are not ideal. So, you know, for us as a fitter, we also need to weigh in, like, how is that bike going to actually behave? You know, it's one thing to fit them comfortably in a fit state studio in a stand and say, oh, it's comfortable. I'm super happy. Mm -hmm. But now you got to go around a corner. Yeah, exactly. We, right. need, we would be remiss to sort of not address the aspects of how that rider's bike behaves when they're at speed. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I'll acknowledge I've probably failed at that a number of times, you know, like really driven to get that fit and that rider happy in the studio mm. and then realize maybe that bike probably didn't handle so well on the mm. road. So, I mean, for me as a fitter, my evolution now is kind of thinking a little bit more holistically about, you know, how that bike behaves in a, in a larger sense than just purely comfort and you know neutral position yeah, yeah. or yeah. power production perhaps right, right? Yeah. yeah i think that's a challenge for a fitter because most fit studios are mine included for many years recently i made a small change to this but i, I put the trainer on a move on a platform on a cirrus mp1 which you know rocks and moves mm -hmm. back and forth right. so i have a little bit of dynamic aspect to the fit i'm also encourage riders to ride rollers sometimes when possible and if they're familiar with that i'll have them learn in the studio or try it and then the bike is moving a little more organically like it would on a road, but that's still only 5% towards the direction of actually riding down, you know, Flagstaff, which right. is a local climb 30 minutes long on the way up, right. you know, eight minutes long on the way down, lots of hairpins and real corners and high speeds and steep grades. And so you want your bike to be able to go down that stuff. Uh, and we don't really have a way to put a rider in that scenario in a fit studio because their bike's in a trainer. Right. And we're looking at things like saddle height and saddle offset. We have to use our crystal ball a little bit to look at where their center of gravity is and say, okay, are they long and low enough over that wheelbase? But at the same time, things aren't so extended. They can't move their center of gravity to maneuver the bike around corners. Right. And then there comes back to the rider education. You can put someone in the perfect position to be able to corner a bike fast, but if their technique is dreadful, it won't matter. They can still ride straight off the side of the road. Right. So there's all those challenges, but bike fitting isn't really set up as a practice in a way that allows us to actionably see a rider go around a corner unless you go out for a ride with them, which I do do that with some of my clients at times. I found that's where I'm going to do on, on days when I'm going to do a full fit. Sometimes I'll meet the rider and we'll ride for an hour first yeah. and do a coffee ride. And then I get to get to know them a bit and talk to them about their issues and their 
what's comfortable and what's working, what isn't in their experiences, stuff like that. And that's kind of a cool way for me to solve that problem. But of course, then it becomes like an all day thing, right. which I'm fine to do that. But, you know, you can only serve so many people at a time like that. I've always thought, I mean, that sort of uh, this sort of holy grail of, of a bike fit experience would be, you know, a ride along, yep. a fit studio session, and then a ride along and then a follow up or, yeah. you know, with Valmont bike park in town here, mm-hmm. take that rider on their mountain bike and do some suspension tuning and do some fitting and then mm-hmm. ride over some obstacles and see how they actually are sitting on the bike in the real world, as opposed to yeah. when they're static in the studio. Yeah. And it is, it's a, it's a missing link in our, our fit practice. I'll, I'll acknowledge that it's something that we I've always, you know, kind of had the same vision, like, yeah, ride along would, would be great, but you know, timing and otherwise it is a, it is a challenge. And and then, you know, to charge appropriately for that amount of time, um, you know, it would, it would, uh, price a lot of riders out of the experience, which, you know, I try and be very inclusive. I want riders to get fit more than try and squeeze an extra dime out of them. Right. But to, you have to charge for your time yeah, too. to value for yeah. your time, yeah. um, the amount that that would cost to do a day session, uh, it's prohibitive in, in a way. Yeah. So. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I do have riders who come from out of state to visit me and they plunk down for a hotel and airfare and stuff like that. And a lot of times when an athlete's already going to that level, I'll write them an email and say, hey, why don't we meet at, you know, a couple hours early, we'll go right. for a ride first. And for me, that's a value add for me because I, from my side. So I don't charge them for that additional time. In that case, they already put down quite a bit of money to see me for what's going to be most of the day anyway. Right, right. So from my perspective, it's sort of a way for me to get a bike ride in, but also help them more at the same time and help distribute my workload over a greater area, which can help offset some of the brain damage of trying to get my head wrapped around everything that's going on. Right. So anyway, that's just the way I tackle that problem sometimes. But yeah, I agree. I mean, we do have some good resources here. We've got good road riding and right. we've got Valmont bike park. So that's not a bad idea. I mean, you're both of our studios are super close to it, but you're, you can almost throw a rock and hit it. So pretty much there's a trail out the, out the door out the back of our door. studio that yeah. can go straight into Valmont. So that's we are lucky cool. that uh, the, you know, it's not, not epic, um, Colorado trail riding, but it's a great little city park that has some fun trails. And so, um, really nice to get a chance to zip over there and ride a little bit sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So rewinding just a bit to what you were saying about pros and two points I want to make there. One is that the original retool data set was based off of pros, which I think is interesting because that probably skewed the data to a point. I mean, okay, let's say you have just to pick a number, you probably have more than this, but let's say you had 10,000 data points in the, in the database, right? And a thousand of those were pros or something. I don't know. I'm just making stuff up. So, all right, one-tenth of the data is pros. And as we, to rewind even further into our conversation, as you pointed out, we have the the colloquialism or the wives' tale, the pro who stops riding their bike for three weeks and then gets back on their bike December 1st and goes, who moved my handlebar so far away, right? Oh, man, this thing is really uncomfortable and I'm so tight. Now, maybe that's because the pro just drank beer and sat on the couch for three weeks because they raced their brains out all season and that's fine hopefully not too much beer, but they, and if they didn't do any gym time or mobility work or flexibility training, then they're really tight and the bars are going to feel like they're a million miles away and they're reaching to, you know, a football field across their top tube. That was a terrible analogy, but so my point being is that pros adapt to an extreme position. 
So when we, so by definition, also we're looking at when you set a data set uh, at the top end based on that adaptation curve, somebody who's doing hours and hours and hours of riding and forcing their bike to adapt to that extreme position, arguably you've got a little bit of a problem there because somebody who's training 22 hours a week or 25 hours a week or riding, you know, 1200 miles a year versus a recreational rider who's riding, you know, 400 miles a year and training eight hours a week or 10 hours a week, you could very well say that you don't really want the amateur to use that bar as something to shoot for. Now, I know that's a small percentage of the data, and I'm sure the bell curve is now shaped by the majority of your user group or of cyclists on the whole. So that's probably shifted that curve. So we see that. But the other point I want to bring up, which I think immediately comes to mind, is that I'd love to know if you agree with this or disagree with this. I think that we as amateur riders, I'm including myself in this category too, I'm training eight hours a week, 12 hours a week if I'm lucky right now. Um, we tend to look at pros, we emulate their positions and we look at them as something to aspire to. But that logic doesn't make a lot of sense because they're training two or three times more than I am at the moment, or we are, I'll say, as a user group, one. But two, also, we tend to think of pros' positions or maybe I think, let me be clear on my language here. I try really hard not to think about or imagine what other people are thinking, right? Right. This is a habit that I've noticed humans have. It's really not constructive. But I'll say that I can imagine that some people might believe that pros, are their positions are, are optimal or are optimized. And as a thought experiment that I'd like to use a thought experiment to illustrate the point that that's not really the case. Many pros are already, by definition, the, we'll say best of best, the 0.1 of 0.1 or the 0.1 of the top percent. And that just happens to be because they won the bike racing genetic lottery, which for the record is a really random lottery because if we were in a tribal system, they probably would have died because people don't make bikes in a tribal system. You can't use them to hunt cheetahs or run away from (laughs) cheetahs or hunt antelope or whatever. You use your feet. That's how you get around. That's how you do things. That's how you go get water, et cetera. So anyway, for the record, those of you who are really amazing bike racers naturally, unless you also have a broader spectrum of talent, I'm not bashing you, but (laughs) I guess I am. So what am I getting at? I like when we look at the path of how a pro athlete arrives in their position, their final position in which they win a tour stage or they win you know, a classic or whatever, or they win uh, an Olympic medal on the track. That cacophony of events isn't necessarily what we think it might be from an external perspective. We assume that because they're performing at the world level, it's easy to assume that things have been optimized and that their position that they're in is some perfect result of an equation of the ultimate fitter, you know, the ultimate mobility training, Um, a perfect execution of all those daily mobility workouts or weekly for years and years and that that rider is injury free and that that rider is perfectly functional and they're performing at their physiological and functional peak. And you've worked with lots of pros at the top end of the sport, as have I. We know this is not the case. Like a lot of pros are held together by kinesio tape and super glue, literally. (laughs) And 
So when we, when you see what I see, I look at a pro Peloton and I see a lot of, to be blunt, disastrous fits, right. but the riders are so good. They're making the best of that. And because of that, the first point you made is that a rider adapts to the position. So when we tell them, this is your position, go adapt to it, go do, you know, 6,000 K in the early season in this position, the human body is amazing. And it, and when that pro has access to constant massage therapy and someone who a physical trainer is going to help them offset their constant nagging injuries and hopefully they've got good nutrition and hopefully they've got good support in all those areas then they can patchwork themselves through that 6000k of training to get to the point where they win an early season race and then we see the photo and we go oh well the position looks kind of funky but man he's he she just won that classic she just won that stage race so she must be super dialed even though i think her saddle looks really high to me but right. or too low or whatever it's so interesting to to you know what are they the armchair uh, you know armchair fitter right fitter. when you're yeah. you're watching bike racing and and you know these these racers are in the hurt locker they're on the front of the bunch they are just giving it everything they have and then you have people that say oh that's a good are they going to emulate that position right it's a disastrous uh you know, approach because yeah, that rider is in a world of hurt, just doing everything they can to turn over the pedals mm -hmm. and get to that finish line first has nothing to do with where their bike even is in space. Right. So we see their body and what their body is doing on the, on the race cam footage. And that has nothing to do with, you know, where they ride the bike 99% of the time, mm. but also, you know, where their actual bicycle coordinates are in space. You're you know, saying I mean, because that, their effort is so extreme that they're all over the place. Yeah. Is that what I mean, what, yeah. what we tend to see on the footage is the breakaway or, you know, the lead of the bunch. And, and that Extreme is a very, moment. yeah, that's a very, uh, particular period of riding. You know, I mean, there's Milan Cinerema, there's six hours of riding, you know, the section we see those last 30 K has nothing to do with the previous the five and a half hours that gets to that point. And right. so, you know, I think that is, it's a trap to get into really focusing too much on what we see, you know, in that, you know, mm -hmm. in that footage. Um, I don't know. That's probably off the point for what you were getting at, but that's, it's certainly one aspect where, you know, people look at those positions and certainly not a great idea to try and emulate that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think your, your bigger point was to say like, if we use these pro positions as a model and use that as an aspirational goal for fitting, even that would be, misguided because, you know, yeah, their position is also very tailored for aerodynamics and for maximum power production. And in some cases for climbing to the, you know, if they're a, a GC contender, they, you know, they have a position that's really tailored for optimized climbing. Mm -hmm. And that's not maybe the rider that rides here around Longmont out on the flats, you know, so you know, right. the, the professional model, uh, I don't think we do well to aspire towards that position in some ways, but I also think we would do well to learn what we can from that position about why they ride that way and why it is that they self-select or, mm. you know, it's kind of this, um, those positions are distilled out of tinkering for years, right? I mean, as you know, it's like some of these pros will tinker and tweak and have fitters and have mechanics and make a lot of changes. And that position has been sort of trickled down through years of use. And so I think it's important to acknowledge the benefits and what we can learn from that position, but also take it with a grain of salt to know that that is a very elite pointy end of the stick position yeah. that 99.9% .9 of us 
could couldn't or shouldn't ride. Shouldn't try to ride. But what can we learn from that? And if if there's an ex- exaggerated change for that rider, can we take a ten percent lesson from that and apply ten percent of that direction for you know a local athlete who wants to you know do the best on the left hand canyon climb? You know, so yeah. I think distilling some lessons from that is important, but just you know, straight up emulating position would be totally misguided. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Well, I think you, yeah, you, you made a good point. I think you're right. A lot of pros do have positions that have been distilled over years and that distillation process is what we don't really have a window into. I mean, maybe an experienced fitter does, and you can see a little bit about how things have evolved. Like during Thomas is a great example. His position has changed radically in the last few years and he still had great success in that. Uh, and to me that suggests that Durant is the point one of point one of point one. He could probably ride, you know, a hobby horse or a tricycle and still win pretty big races. Right. Brad Wiggins is probably another example of that. Um, and, and I think that's interesting, but I also see some athletes who make it to the world to a level. And I've worked with some of these personally who have positions that I would argue are well off the mark of what, in my opinion, is optimal, but they're making it work. Right. And, it's a testament to not only the perseverance of the athletic body and spirit, but also how things can slip through the cracks. I think it's, you know, as a bike fitter who goes to a, a camp, a team camp to work with professional athletes, it's a bit of a tricky situation because a lot of these athletes have established relationships with people that they've been working with coaches or fitters that they've been working with for years and years. Right. And then they come to a camp and, Maybe they have an experience where the fitter has an agenda and they want to – there's this negotiation of egos and agendas, is, I guess I'll say it. And the, the rider, of course, wants to perform well, but maybe they've got an investment or a, a good relationship with people in their camp, their personal sphere of influence, right. their own per- performance team. And maybe those people are or are not within the professional team that they're hired by. Frequently, they're not. And then we have this fitter come in and they've got – this, their own philosophies and beliefs about bike fitting. And maybe those two spheres don't have that much overlap. So there's a negotiation there, right? So when I've worked with professional teams or professional riders, I'll say, I kind of try to make it clear that I don't really have an agenda for an outcome. I'm just there to help them. And I try to offer them my perspective and and my honest opinion. Really, that's how I approach any fit, right? But the point being is when I walk away from a camp, I may or may not have had a change on an athlete's given position or an influence. I'll say, even though from my perspective, that rider's position isn't really optimized. All I can do is offer my honest opinion and let them choose to navigate the waters. So it's entirely possible that you may be witnessing professional riders whose positions are, in my opinion, far from an ideal outcome or execution. Uh, but they're making it work and they're making it work at the world level. And maybe they're even winning races. Right. That doesn't mean that things couldn't be optimized. Right. Right. No, I think it's an important point that, you know, coming into a situation like that, whether it's a retail fit scenario or a professional team camp with a personal agenda yeah. is only going to fail. Yeah. But if you come into or any a corporate situation, agenda, you could say, right, or, exactly. Right? And but if you come in with the clear agenda that your agenda is the rider's uh, priority, and, and what is their priority? Let's figure that out. But I think where where we've been able to to leverage some techniques or technology 
with with a good effect is giving the rider and the the coaches and the teams some data to work with. And again, that's kind of where the retool data has a benefit is it's not my opinion. It's not my agenda. It's just the data, right? So mm. let's look at these numbers. Let's interpret these numbers. Let's see where you are within that framework. And then if there's appropriate to make a change based on the retool data, we do that. And, you know, the, the tradition of, you know, okay, here's your team bike, put a 130 stem on, cut all the fork off, you know, slammed as long and low as possible. Right. You know, that's, that is, uh, you know, came from a long history of, of pro cycling, you know, for us as fitters, we've always laughed at how absurd that is. But when we go to these team camps now, we can actually look at a position and say, okay, with that 130 stem on slammed, you are off the charts, even for pros, you're lower and longer than anyone we've ever measured. Then maybe we'd back yeah. off a little bit. And it's not my opinion. It's just, here's where you are in the data. Mm. And then where we've been able to sort of take that to a, a different level in the last few years is to integrate some, some physiology testing with the, the metabolic kit and, and using uh, the Cosmed uh, VO2 measurement uh, techniques to actually measure physiological performance in different positions and actually quantify using data, we could say that position is costing you physiologically. It may be arrow, but you're also paying a big price physiologically. And mm -hmm. so we can, again, provide them. If you want to ride there and it's arrow, okay, but we're saying that that actually is costing you physiologically a penalty. Mm -hmm. If you're willing to pay that, okay, but we can inform them provide them with some insights on the physiology side, on the biomechanical fit side, yeah. give them the information. And then if they're like all in, let's make a change. So again, it's providing the, the context, the framework yep. to then let the rider have some buy-in, let the coaches have some buy-in to the reasons why we're making a change. Again, we don't ever make a change without a very methodical approach to why we're making that change. Mm. It's not just because it's my opinion. It's not because that looks crazy. It's you know, there may be a physiological cost and that position in the retool data set is just off the charts. Let's bring you into a range that uh, has less physiological penalty, yeah, more biomechanically neutral, more comfortable. And wow, I can see the road. I mean, you hear this from riders, like I can look ahead comfortably, like it doesn't hurt <laughs> my neck anymore. Wow. Right. So, you know, that's a, that's a supplemental benefit, right? When we have a, a physiological benefit, a fit benefit, and wow, they can actually see down the road better and mm -hmm. their neck doesn't hurt. That doesn't hurt. Yeah. You know, it's that kind of three-part like confirmation again, data, data-driven decisions and positive rider feedback that really hits that home run for like, mm -hmm. this is a positive change. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of been interesting in the last yeah. few years, uh, been a really fun transition to provide more layers of data to let coaches and riders make decisions and we're just facilitating that process to to give them the information, take it or leave it, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if you want to still slam that position and ride as, as low and aggressive as possible, okay, but here's the reasons why we think that may not be mm -hmm. ideal. And so just to be clear, when you're talking about the metabolic cost, you guys are using VO2 with inspired and expired gases, mm -hmm. and then you're looking at power. So what you're doing is changing position. You have a baseline, right, as an example. Then you change the position. Maybe you raise the bars. Maybe you lower the bars. And then you simply look at amount of O2 consumed versus watts made. Is that correct? In some ways, yeah. There's there's a couple layers of interpretation that goes into okay. to the different positions. Uh, but, you know, generally we've always had this context. And when at Specialized, we built the wind tunnel a number of years ago. Yeah. And we had a number of riders come in and we would find this 
super low CDA, like really arrow position, right? I mean, it's fun to kind of video game that process and find the most arrow position possible. Mm-hmm. But, you know, not as a we can learn, pedal in that position. Yeah, I mean, people go out on the road and like, I can't ride there for more than five minutes, right? And so like right. the kind of learnings there was arrow is so important, but we've always said this as fitters with kind of this notion that like arrow is only as important or as good as you can ride in that position, right? So you need to be able to maintain an arrow position for it to be arrow. Yeah. And we we had this notion for a long time, but with the the metabolic analysis, we can actually define the window that a rider, just like with bike fit, you know, there's a, a seat height range that a rider could ride. Yeah. There's also a, a, a handlebar height or a physiological range that a rider could ride as well. Our agenda is to kind of identify the limits for an individual where that rider starts to pay a penalty that's significant enough for it to be a problem. Mm-hmm. So if we can identify a stop point and say, okay, this is where low is too low. This is where things fall off a cliff. Exactly. That's, yeah. that's exactly it. Find that inflection point where the, the data falls off a cliff. Yep. Then we know there's a bound. And if we stay within the bound, we can fine tune within that context. Right. Right. But then how do you account for the amount of adaptation a rider could have to that position? I mean, let's say that, let's say you put them in their super, their best CDA, their most optimized CDA, super low drag, whatever it is. And then you say, okay, but your power is well off the cliff at this point. Right. So then we're going to back you up and we're going to lose, you know, X amount of CDA. We're going to gain drag or increase drag, I should say, um, because we're going to raise your bars this amount. And they go, well, but I really want that low CDA. And you go, cool, knock yourself out. So you, you, you respect the opinion of the rider. You slam that stem. They go out the door with that super low CDA. And then they go and they're stretching and they're foam rolling and they're getting massage and they're doing soft tissue work and they're riding in the position and they're not just riding their TT. Let's pretend this is a TT bike because this is a common scenario. They're not just riding it one hour a week. They're riding it, you know, nine hours a week and they're doing efforts in it. And over time, this hypothetical thought experiment, optimal rider comes back six months later and sure enough, they've adapted to this position, right? And they're, maybe their road bike FTP is X and their TT bike FTP is 10% less or 5% less. But when you started out in that super low position, it was 20% less. So this is part of the equation of evaluating a rider's compliance with the program and being realistic about how good they're going to be in an, an, in an adaptation protocol versus someone else who just wants the bars to be super low. So it looks cool at the coffee shop, but their back is hurting all the time and they're barely making it down to the bars right. and they do that thing where they're reaching to the tops of their fingertips because yeah. the bars are so too low, you know? You know, that's an important part of the calculus, right? So yeah. when, we, when we look at a rider, the VO2 values and their, their raw values are one piece of the puzzle, but are they a time trial specialist? Are they committed to work to that position? Are they adaptable? And that's actually part of the conversation with the coaching staff and the physios and to say like, is this rider going to be able to adapt and modify this sort of Graham Obrey, you know, style, yeah. you know, can they assume a position if it has race benefit, will they be able to make that change? And are they committed to make that change? Um, so that, that side is also part of the calculus. We say, okay, we've got the data from the VO2. We've got the retool data. We also need to know who that rider is and, and analyze how committed they are to a time trial position or a, a, an aggressive position. Mm-hmm. You know, you got, you know, sprinters who 
just want to get through the TTT, right? They just are going to hang in the back and kind of ride. And yep. they're not a time trial specialist. But then you also, you have other riders who they just they're going for world time trial championship, and so they are committed at the highest level to that position. We might push the bounds a little bit. Mm-hmm. That said, it's not as simple as if a VO2 is a penalty and we come up, we lose CDA. We've seen any number of times that an uh, an increased stack head in the pads can actually improve metabolically and improve aerodynamically. Right, and, right, you know, right. You've heard this before, but the the outdated notion that slam is, is arrow, always more arrow. It, it's just it is for some riders, but yeah. not for all. Yeah. And so riders often who are paying a metabolic penalty, they're not comfortable. They're so slammed. They're also not arrow because they're they're fighting with that position. Yeah. So if we can get them comfortable, get them in an appropriate fit position, and they can just relax into that, their CDA for sure can come down in a lot of cases. So mm. we've seen that a number of times when we get, you know, metabolic benefit and aero benefit by raising the pads. But again, it's individualized, right? To say that is going to work for everybody is not the case. Yep. There are some riders who for sure still get a low CDA. And, you know, the aero variable is a high priority. I mean, we need to make sure that that rider maintains good aerodynamics. Mm -hmm. Some riders do pay a penalty when they come up and that's part of this balance of, you know, fit metabolics, aerodynamics, and kind of finding this balance for each individual. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. I, I love this discussion because well, I'll make two, two broad points on this. One is that, you know, especially in Zwift world and training peaks world, we tend to think of people's performance in a bike race being dependent on their FTP. And the easiest way to compare that apples to apples is to convert it to watts per kilo. Right. But I've made this point many times in the podcast, I won't beat it to death, but the horse is already down. So I'm going to kick it once. Watts per kilo only applies when you are racing your bike in a hill climb in a vacuum. That's yes. Watts per kilo is of course a predictor of outcome in bike races, but Nearly every bike race, 95, 98% of all bike races, aerodynamics is a big part of the outcome. And it's much harder to quantify CDA. So that's the only reason we don't use that reference. But the reality is we should all be looking at watts per per gram of drag. Mm -hmm. That's a far bigger outcome of performance. It's a far bigger predictor of race outcome than watts per kilo. It's just watts per kilo is easy to measure because all you need is a scale and a power meter. But to get CDA, you need a wind tunnel or one of the crazy devices that you put in your handlebar that requires a software engineering background to actually get set up and work. Or you need to go use a chung test, which isn't the most complicated thing in the world, but is reasonably complicated. There are a few other methods you can use, right? But to find your CDA, basically you have to do a bunch of research and figure it out. And also CDA is not as, it's not as easily defined because... CDA changes with helmet choice, jersey choice, handlebar position, right? right? So we we don't know these things are not as easy to track, but they're a far bigger outcome predictor for race performance, which is ironic. I also think another point you made is really good that we the old school model is lower is more arrow. The fact is there are a lot of riders who can benefit from higher higher arm pad position in arrow bars, for example, but get improved drag numbers. How is this possible? Well, in many cases, the line of posterior tension becomes too high when you fold at the hip excessively. So we release that lever a little bit and you get the riders, then the rider's ability to turtle the head 
and bring the shoulders up to the ears increases and the net result in drag is a lower drag, right? I mean, the takeaway here is that fluid dynamics are really complicated and you can have a good wind tunnel eyeball if you're fitting someone on a TT bike and you don't have access to a wind tunnel in your backyard like right. you guys do in California, but you don't have that here. Right. You've got the mat cart, so you can do a little bit of that, but you're still basically looking at a rider and sort of estimating their aerodynamics based on your wind tunnel experience, right? right? Is that a fair? Yeah. No, I mean, I think something that, that you kind of caught on to there was, um, I think of the, the recent film that came out, um, Ford versus Ferrari. I mean, just kind of a mm. fun car movie, you know, lots of good revving engine sounds and, you know, just good car racing. But, you know, they, they build this car with this mega engine, you know, like mega powered Ford muscle car engine. And the driver drives it and he's like, I can't go around a corner. It's going to come off the ground. The aerodynamics are totally off. The handling is off. So mm -hmm. you, know, you can have this super high watts per kilo, but if the CDA is not, you know, appropriate to kind of handle the bike and move through the air appropriately, yep. that big engine does you nothing, right? So, you know, the big engine is important. You got to have a big engine, but you also got to have the aerodynamics and the handling and the behavior of the bike, the ability to brake, I mean, stop and turn corners is all part of that, you know, winning race car and winning, you know, uh, bike race, right? Mm -hmm. So it's this combination. I think you're right. Like, mm -hmm. Watts per kilo, it's easy to, it's easy to measure and it's, and it's easy to kind of quantify that. And it's something we can all chase a little bit, right? I mean, you're on Zwift and you're on, you know, your trainer at home and it's fun to kind of try and push those, mm -hmm. push those numbers up a little bit. Um, but yeah, the, the CDA and the handling and the braking and the cornering is all part yeah. of that, that puzzle. And maneuvering in a Peloton. Right. And that's something that gets overlooked in the U S because we have giant roads and small right. fields, but you get to Europe, man, and every road is basically an alley right. or a go path. And right. you've got huge pelotons and everyone can, everyone can handle their bikes better. Handling becomes really important. Yeah. yeah. I think there's, I mean, we're seeing so much of, you know, the crossover from cyclocross these days where people are coming from this cyclocross foundation of, you know, hopping barriers and riding through mud and, you know, all the kind of variables of bike handling that we see. I mean, all of the current stars in cycling right now have come up from this cyclocross foundation in, in European cross and, you know, European cross is so, at such a high level. And then the riders that make the jump from, you know, world caliber cyclocross racers straight into the road Peloton and they're right at the front of the bunch, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting to kind of see that, that sort of crossover. And even from mountain bike, you have a lot of, you know, pro athletes who are, you know, jumping all three categories, racing elite mountain bike, uh, XCO, uh, mm -hmm. racing cyclocross and racing, uh, in the road. So it's cool to see that we have this sort of crossover in specialties and, and, that the cycling world is kind of identifying that as really a positive and not the sort of specialist, you know, just mountain bike purely or yep. road purely that you actually have riders that are bridging all categories, which is really exciting to see. Yeah. It's cool. Cross disciplinary yeah. gives spectators a lot of cool stuff to totally. look at. People love it. And watch. I, and I'll say, I, I definitely agree with that line of thought and that vein of thought. Um, that's super cool. I think also, I'll say that we're getting, we kind of ripped ourselves off a little bit because we had that previously in Marianne Voss. We just, right. she's a woman, so she didn't get right. as much attention. Exactly. Which kind of sucks for the ladies, but right. they're catching up hopefully um, in recognition. So, okay. I want to ask one very specific question about modern bike position philosophy and what you think about this. And this is something that 
I've thought a lot about and discussed quite a bit in my pods, but it seems that right now in the world of bell bottoms, we've gone away from skinny jeans. Uh, sorry, in the, in the world of denim, we're on to bell bottoms now. Skinny jeans we're in. Now, right. now we're circling back. And by that, I mean it is the thing to slam the saddle forward on road bikes. And there's a lot of, there are a lot of pros and a lot of amateurs who are into this. Let's slam the saddle forward and put a 130, 140 stem on. And I presume that, I think that's born out of two basic lines of thought. One, I think a lot of people are focused on not making the hip angle too acute. That's just to define that. So people know, I think most people know what this is, but when your thigh comes up to the top of the stroke at 12 or one o'clock, the, the, when your leg comes up to that point of the stroke, the thigh gets really close to your rib cage and that hip angle becomes very acute. And that's something that we've kind of borrowed from triathlon world right now. Um, in the last 10 years, there's been a big movement to not make the hip angle as acute. Right. The perception being that if that hip angle is too acute, it impinges the athlete's performance when they get to the run. And that was born by feedback from a lot of top-end triathletes, I think. And that sort of trickled down. And there are different ways you can make that hip angle less acute. And one of them is to slam your saddle forward. Another is to put the rider on shorter cranks uh, or some combination of other things. So that's one aspect. And then the other part, I think, is that people are chasing aerodynamics. They're chasing CDA in the road. And if you want to slam your bars low, but you don't have the hip mobility to handle that acute uh, angle between the femur and the torso, then slam the saddle forward and put a longer stem on. Of course, that changes your weight distribution over the bottom bracket and the axle. So I was, I'd like to know what you think about that trend right now. Sure. It's a good one. It's a really good pointed question. Uh, the pandemic lockdown let me dig deep into this. So I've spent the last year really cracking into this concept. Um, one of the benefits of the retool data is that I have motion capture data of thousands of riders to look at, including hundreds of professional athletes, as well as everyday athletes that we see, you know, in the world. Um, so I'll back up a little bit and say, probably some of this is a reaction from kind of Le Mans era, you know, old school road racing when that, that seat was back, that reach was long and, you know, we look back at those positions, you know, in, in footage these days and it's like, oh my God, how could anybody ride that way? So I think we came from a position that was really extreme in the other direction. Mm -hmm. And for me as a fitter, my entire career has a lot of the corrections have been, yeah, trying to get people on top of the pedal and get them out of the back seat. And that's kind of been a theme that I've seen is like, okay, people are on the bike and they're in the back end. And so we might bring them forward a little bit to kind of a, a neutral knee over pedal spindle, right? And I know that's kind of a, an antiquated concept, but, you know, yep. getting them from an inch or two behind to at least on top of the pedal was a huge benefit. And anecdotally, so many riders found benefit in that change, going from behind the pedal to at least above the pedal with the knee in a, in a mm -hmm. traditional sense. Can I pause you just for one second yes. there? Sorry to interrupt, but I, I definitely want to drop a link in the show notes to a really old school article on this. It's written by Keith Bontrager of, yes, Bontrager. And it's called the COPS, that's Knee Over Pedal Spindle. That's the acronym, K-O-P-S. And he unpacks his philosophy on why knee over pedal spindle is a super arbitrary measurement that has been used in bike fitting for years and years and why he thinks it's not relevant. So anyway, I want to put that in there so, so people can read that. No, that's it's a great. cool piece of history. So please continue. No, that's great. I mean, that K-O-P-S, knee over pedal spindle, 
um, kind of an, an analog method with, you know, using the plumb line, right? Dropping a plumb bob from the knee somewhere on the knee to somewhere on the pedal or crank. Um, I think it's a good, it's a good guide, but it's not, you know, this kind of like get to the millimeter kind of target in any way. But, mm-hmm. um, in any case, to your point, I guess I, um, we've come from a, a place where a lot of athletes were riding behind the pedals. And so we've kind of come on top of the pedals. I think we made good strides there. I think you're right in your observation that we do see a trend in elite athletes slamming forward with the saddle, um, you know, zero offset seat posts and seat slam forward. I think you're right about protecting the hip angle. The hip is a finite range of movement, right? You're going to bump into the torso. You're going to bump into the rib cage, right? So all riders have a finite range of motion when it comes to closing the hip. So um, one thing I was able to pull from the the pro data versus your everyday, you know, uh, everyday rider or your average Joe uh, weekend athlete is that even though they ride 130 mil stems and they ride what we think is aggressive, they're marginally more closed at the hip than you and I. So looking at the the retool data sets, we can say that, yes, they are lower for aerodynamics, for for other factors, but they're not that much more closed at the hip than your your average um, rider. So, you know, there's a number of ways that they can do that to maintain a, a relatively open hip or a not overly closed hip. You know, the ankle plays a role, right? The riders have to sort of manipulate the foot and ankle to clear the top of the pedal stroke. Mm-hmm. For a, a rider to maintain a hip closure, the ankle and the saddle fore and aft are ways that they can maintain a reasonable uh, hip closure. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're right. Um, there is a trend for sure in riders coming forward with the saddle. Um, and I think it is to protect hip angle. Mm-hmm. But I think you're right. Aerodynamics is part of that calculus at the at the professional level. Um, but I also think, you know, for me, I'm I'm nowhere near a professional athlete. But when I'm pushing hard, I want to get up on top of the pedals and I, I sit forward on the saddle. And I think it's acknowledging that that's where I go when I pedal hard. And not to say that what I do in a bike has anything to do with other people. But I do think mm. this tendency to to shift forward and sit on the tip of the saddle when you're giving it some gas is common. So let's, you know, support the rider and get the saddle underneath them and let them be supported in a position that they mm. want to push the pedals in. So what do you think of the potential compromises then as you bring the saddle forward thinking about, I'm thinking specifically about muscle recruitment patterns and also thinking about how much of the weight of the torso is supported by the saddle. Right. Yeah. I mean, for us as fitters, we often think about, you know, what is the cost at the knee joint, right? Do, do Are we overloading the patella tendon? Are we yeah. overstressing the knee joint? And, you know, when you talk about athletes that are highly tuned to tolerate that position, it might be more reasonable for an athlete who has no knee pain, has all the physio, the massage, the support to tolerate that position. They might be able to do that. But, you know, for you and I to jump on a bike and slam that seat all the way forward, there may be negative compromises at the knee joint, um, you know, at the back, pressure on the hands. And, yeah, mm-hmm. handling quality, if you think about the weight distribution on the bike to to slam all the way forward and put all that weight on the front end, we are – probably pushing the bounds of what that bike was meant to handle yep. as far as weight distribution and, and how the bike is going to behave with that shift in mass. Yeah. I mean, Happy talks about that. He He's of the opinion that a lot of pros that have slammed themselves forward now, he's getting a lot 
his opinion is they're getting a lot more front wheel washouts because there's too much weight on the front wheel and things are imbalanced. Mm. And that's why we're seeing these massive crashes in roundabouts and stuff. And I like, it'd be really interesting to look at the data on that. You could probably characterize Grand Tour average speed break stages down into terrain profiles and then look at number of crashes in the last right. 20 years and correlate that. I bet you could look at that data. That's probably researchable. I wonder if anyone's done that, but, and then look, you'd have to have some sort of baseline for seeing how much saddles have come forward. And that data is probably also accessible. I mean, you guys retail works with, I don't know, a third of the pro Peloton. I bet you have data on at least I'm guessing, I don't know, maybe more, but so you could look at that data and mine that too, and do that correlation and see if there is an increase in that. And happy. And I concluded our podcast by saying, I, I am of the opinion. I hope the bike manufacturers do not start to shift the geometry of road bikes to have really steep C2 angles and become triathlete bikes to offset that and allow riders to come more forward. There's got to be, I mean, if everyone's using zero offset posts and slamming their saddles all the way forward, I mean, you know that the optimal place to clamp a saddle is not at the end of the rails one way or the other. Right. Because inevitably you hit a big pole and something bad happens, the bolt breaks or the rails bend or whatever, the saddle falls off and then somebody gets skewered. That's never a good scenario. Right. So... Uh, we want the saddle, we want the seat angle, seat tube angle of a bike to allow the saddle to be clamped in the center of the rails. Then, you know, cause the saddle is a suspended object. People don't maybe understand this, but it's like a wheel. The base has tension and that tension it's, that's why you can't just put new saddle rails on yourself. If they come off, which happens about once every blue moon, you have to have this massive machine that pulls the base over the rails and it's sprung. And that's what gives it a saddle that kind of light suspension aspect to it, right? That tension in the base, it's like a wheel, right. like spokes in a wheel. So, um, when you come down hard on that suspended surface, if you exceed the, what, I don't know my engineering term, the something force tension, things break, right. it goes bad. But so I, I'm hoping that while I want saddles to be clamped in the center of the rail so that the suspended a structure of the saddle can do its job and help the riders, but stay comfy over bumpy surfaces. I don't really want bikes geometry to shift to reflect this trend because to me, this is a bit of a bell bottom trend. And I'll just say from my perspective, I think we're, we're potentially sacrificing some handling aspects of the bike. A bike could be re-engineered to handle, to offset that forward position. But from my perspective, you look in the gym. Okay. You brought it up too just a minute ago. If someone's doing a squat or a lunge and their knee comes way out over the toe, the first thing we see is in a squat, we see that they're going to, by necessity, have spinal flexion. So they're compromising the function of their spine. That may or may not be the case on the bike. But we're also increasing patellar shear force. So we've got to assume that with forward position, there's probably a likely a higher likelihood of anterior knee overuse injuries, most likely. And at what price or at what benefit, it's to reduce the hip angle. I think hip angle is a fun, it's a, it's, it's a factor, but when also, when we shove the butt forward, we're influencing muscle recruitment patterns and we're putting the athlete into quad dominance. So from my perspective, when you slam the saddle forward, it doesn't make a lot of sense because if I were coaching someone to have ideal squat form in the gym, what does every strength and conditioning coach do? They start you off with, for example, a wall squat where you're facing the wall, right? And your toes are three or four, maybe five inches away from the wall. And you squat down. And if you can do it well, your butt pushes out from the wall and your chest doesn't come into the wall. You don't scrape your nose on that wall. That's 
a simple body weight exercise that helps us define whether an athlete has the ability to hip hinge under load. And if you can't do a wall squat without falling on your butt, then we know that you've got some hip hinge challenges. And when we do that wall squat, it really emphasizes the posterior chain function that's glutes, calves, glutes, and hamstrings and how well they can move, but also how well they can uh, uh, handle that tension, right, under load. So when we do that wall squat, it tells us about how the athlete moves in space. And now we put them under in a squat rack loaded in a back squat position. And if we, let's say we're doing a four by 12 with heavy weight, if I was a strength coach and I saw that the last three reps of every set, their knees were coming forward and they were going less deep that would be the equivalent of slamming the saddle forward on the bike. Because when you move forward on the saddle, you're getting less knee extension, right? right. Because you're, for, you're assuming your saddle's horizontal or close. You're not moving that tangent of the circle, you're moving in a horizontal. So now I've gone to underextension, so I'm not using the muscles to their full range, but I'm also pushing the knees forward, increasing patellar shear, but I'm down-regulating posterior chain recruitment. So I'm going from less glute to more quad. And I don't, this is, I would say a heated topic right now in, in it's not heated at all in the gym, like any strength and conditioning coach who's respectable that I've ever studied or, or worked with would argue that we want to keep your butt back and have proper form during all those reps. But in cycling for some exam, for some reason, it's acceptable to come forward over the bottom bracket and get on top of the pedals as you described. And there are a lot of riders who ride this way. Um, I've trained myself to not ride that way when I go hard, but maybe I'm just me and it's an N of one. And there, I think there's some athletes who can do that. And so without going down too many more wormholes of fitting and saddle choice and all the other bits, it seems to me that the way to solve this problem is to keep the butt back, keep glute recruitment engaged and shorten crank length. And so then when the crank is in the vertical position, obviously we don't have as acute of a hip angle, mm -hmm. Right. To me, that's like the tidy solution. And in case people are wondering, there's a mountain of science that shows that crank length has very little to do with FTP and power output. There are limited applications where you do want a longer crank, but the short, the cliff notes are that Jim Martin's done a lot of science on this. And please tell me if you agree or disagree with this, but the cliff notes are if you're a world tour level pros trying to win a stage in the Volta or you're a cross country mountain biker, you might have an argument to push the envelope on longer crank length. And the reason is that for those two rider examples, you've got scenarios where the rider runs out of gears, meaning they cannot shift. Right. They're in their lowest gear and they're going as hard as possible on a really steep grade at a low cadence. And in those conditions, a long crank will help you. But the problem is you have to carry around that long crank length and deal with that extra functional challenge of that super deep squat all the rest of the year. And for the vast majority of all athletes, you might think you're going to win a stage in the Volta, but... Sorry, man. <laughs> You're probably not. Right. Sorry. A lot of thoughts. No, that's good. Um, you know, the short crank length is, is a good observation. I mean, I think that's definitely something that is, is fun to test in a fit session with an adjustable crank and, and actually drop the crank length. And, and you're right. I mean, from my understanding, I, I haven't gone super deep on the, the crank length topic. I, I'm aware of Jim Martin's research to say that basically it doesn't really matter, you know, like if you, with a bit of adaptation, we all can ride a good number of cranks. Mm. I do think, you know, biomechanically, there is kind of a crank length that's sort of within the, 
the bounds of what the the body will react to well. But in general, for me as a fitter, shorter crank lengths generally just have a benefit. Like we said, to keep the hip angle open, to not overflex the knee. Um, so yeah, there is in a fit context, a lot of benefit to the shorter cranks. Help keep the hips more stable. Yeah. That's what I've observed. Rarely would I say during a fit, let's put you on a, a long crank. I mean, that would be yeah. a real outlier scenario for me to say, let's step you up. Right. But there's a number of cases in a fit scenario where I'd say, you know, taking it down two to five mil would really be a benefit for hips, for knees, otherwise. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think, um, you know, that short crank is a consideration for people going to extremes. I don't know as we, you know, I would make a case to go too far. I'm probably conservative on, on that front. So if it's, you know, you're on a 175 dropping a couple mil probably would be a benefit. Um, but I'm not necessarily one to say, oh yeah, let's take you to 160 and, you know, really push that bounds. But, right. you know, in, especially in, we can give credit to the triathlon community for pushing those bounds, right? I mean, these are riders who are willing mm-hmm. to experiment and have really led the way in testing super short cranks and super forward positions and trying it out, right? I mean, mm-hmm. why not experiment and see if we can find benefits? So, you know, we definitely owe the triathlon community for that willingness to experiment with some of these sort of fringy concepts that really in some cases have benefit. In some cases, it's just an individual preference. Yeah. Well, I think, um, that's all for position and that discussion is nuanced and it's got a lot, just like anything, the deeper you dig into it, the more ramifications yeah. there are, right? No, you're right. I mean, it's, a. Uh, I guess from my perspective, I can say I can identify what the trend is and then, yeah, that's where the discussion is, whether that's, you know, good, good or bad, right? Bad. So, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, again, like we talked about earlier, you know, there's riders who distill a position based on their discipline and based on, you know, where they find benefit, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, if a rider tries a position and the knees bother, they're probably not going to stay there, right? Um, but yep. Does that mean you and I can ride that position without our knees bothering? Maybe, maybe not. So maybe, maybe not. Right. Um, so yeah, it's it's an interesting question. But you know, I think if there's benefit, whether it's psychological or you know physiological, um, riders are always going to chase after benefit. And mm-hmm. um, so there's you know in triathlon, in road racing, mountain biking, and otherwise, there's riders that are pushing those bounds to see if we can shake up the trends to find, you know, performance benefit, right? Everyone wants to find that 0.1% that might give them that podium spot. So um, people are willing Mm. to push that bound to see if they can find that 0.1%. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I was listening to a podcast last night. Uh, It's called That Triathlon Show or something like that. Uh, It's quite a good pod, actually. And the guy's a coach. He's a, he's a triathlon coach. He was talking about how a suggestion he had is for during, uh, I'm making a parallel here in an annual program or annual plan, you might train your weakness, the farther you are from away from a race and then progress towards your strength, the closer you get. And he went so far as to suggest that there's not a lot of data to support training more of your weakness or more of your strength. There's that old saying, you know, training weakness, race your strength. He said, there's not a ton of data in any individual case to support that one may give you a better performance than the other, but there's a benefit to the fact that in the months coming into your race, the last two months, for example, if you train more of your strength, you're naturally going to have more success in your training efforts. So if you're a threshold monster, you might, you know, work more on VO2 early season, for example, and work more towards threshold as you get closer to your race. And that is just going to help sort of put wind in your sails, we might say, to help you feel better because you're naturally good at that. 
And that's going to give you confidence. And that confidence is going to help you kind of align towards your goal of that peak performance for your, your race. And so I think, um, there are a lot of confounding variables in human performance and the psychology of the athlete and how it plays out. If someone perceives that putting a 140 stem on and slamming their saddle forward is going to make them super arrow. And every time they get on the flats, they feel like they're crushing people because of that 140 stem. They look down and see that might be worth as much or more than any other positional philosophy or change that we give them. Right. So right. it's about belief and intent as much as it is, um, the actual outcome in some cases, I'm not saying that you can put any rider in any position and have them believe that because they're shaped like a wedge of cheese, they're going to win bike races. But psychology plays a lot, right? It's the yeah. placebo effect. No, I think you're right. Like yeah. the, the psych psychological impact of bike fitting and positioning and tuning, even if we go through a couple hour or three, four, six hour session and we don't change anything, but that rider knows now, A, they're confident that their position is good. Yeah. They leave that session we didn't change a thing, but we looked at everything. We, looked under all we the rocks. answered all of their questions. We explored mm. all of the variables. Yep. They can leave there being like, that was so worth it because now I know my position is mm -hmm. good. Mm -hmm. I can just go hammer the pedals. And so I think that's kind of this, you know, the trap that a lot of fitters can get into is like get a rider in and like feel like they have to make, have a, to change. make a change. Yeah, and it's so, yeah. it's such a trap to think that, that making a change is the point of the session. The point of the session is to... Mm evaluate the rider, work with the rider based on their variables. And, and if there's no reason for change and we can't find any benefit to, to change, then that's still a great result to say we confirm your position is fantastic. Mm -hmm. That's an excellent point. The other thing that you keyed in on there that I really like is, is, you know, I always tell riders at the end of the session, like the pedaling muscles, you know, your riding form will come naturally. We're, where are we now? We're in, in March, right? So now is not the time to worry too much about the big power and the all the riding stuff. Come June and July, that's all going to sort itself out in a way. You're going to be riding and that's going to sort itself out. Now is the time for the yoga and the Pilates and the strength training and the stuff that you kind of have to engage with, right? The, the things that you have to, like you said, your weakness, right? Mm -hmm. Training to your weakness. So if during the fit we identify some flexibility concerns, some strength concerns, some core strength variables that we want to work on, that's the stuff to sort of prioritize and focus on. Your pedaling muscles, your pedaling fitness is just going to come. You're going to ride yourself into that fitness as you adapt to the position and ride. But where we have to motivate to make uh, a difference is in the off-bike training and, and mm -hmm. doing some of that kind of core strength and, and the kind of off-bike stability work that we all would benefit from yeah. if we take the time and commit to to really engage with that. Yeah, I, I do believe that the ride fitness just it will naturally come on its own. Jason, thank you so much for making time to come in today. Sure it was great to, to talk shop with you and uh, dork out on all things fitting. I really appreciate it. Um, if you wouldn't mind, tell riders where or tell our audience where people can find out more about you. Sure. Um, I work at Retool headquarters in uh, Boulder, Colorado. Um, we're on Airport Road uh, in Boulder. Uh, it's a specialized experience center. We have a, a demo facility with a number of of great specialized demo bikes and we have our fit studios uh in place there we'll put a link to the experience center in the, in yeah. the show notes so people can totally. can chase you down there public service announcement listen up space monkeys we're gonna make a slight change to the 
method of operations in how you give me feedback or post questions on my episodes. And there's a reason for this. The reason is the purpose of this entire project is for me to get my mind movies, my internal dialogue out into the universe and make it external. And thus for me to teach you and for me to learn more. The best way to do that is for us to make all questions happen in a public format so that multiple people can benefit from the answers. In the past, I've asked you to send me an email, but we're going to change the gears on that. What I'd like you to do is post your questions or episode feedback in the Fast Talk Labs forum. Fear not, there are parts of the forum that you have to pay for, but every podcast episode that I produce gets its own page in the forum. So go to the Fast Talk Labs forum, you have to make an account, and then you can post your question there. Make sure and at Colby me in the podcast forum. That's an at with a Colby afterwards. That makes sure that I know you posted the question and I will respond and then everyone can check it out. I really appreciate your feedback on the episodes. I really appreciate your input on future episode ideas. This tells me that my audience is engaged and cares about what I'm doing. So head to the Fast Talk Labs forum and post your questions there and everyone can benefit from our discussion. Thank you for listening. Much gratitude. Ride in flow.